0: Galatians, the first chapter, the first verse. And if you want to be technical about it, Galatians, the first chapter, the first verse, the first three words. By the way, this past week I spoke in chapel at Taylor and I told a joke and nobody laughed except that after I got done telling the joke... Uh, a particular dorm of men, Sammy Morris, roared at my inability to tell a joke. And I don't know what it is, but I'm not able to tell jokes. I don't believe that jokes should be central to the pulpit. But if any of you have any suggestions for me, I'd be very appreciative. (laughs) Now, why was that funny? I don't get it. (laughs) Because I'm hopeless, right? (laughs) This Lord's Day... We are going to start with a study of the book of Galatians. I have no idea how long it will take. Some of you might want to make a guess. Two years? Tim Wagner says two years. John, you want to take a guess? I don't know how long it will take, but um, the question of what to preach on is a question that is very important in the life of a church people will often say to you as a pastor, just preach the Word, Pastor. Or they'll say, um, preach the whole counsel of God. And what they mean is, you know, have confidence in the Word, give us a balanced diet. But one of the jobs of elders and pastors is to use the Word of God to cure souls. And you understand that when you go into a doctor, if if you have cancer and the doctor tells you you have a broken leg, and proceeds to put a cast on your leg. There's something wrong with that doctor. And I think that uh, somebody who came into America today and who looked at the books of First and Second Corinthians and said, well, this has no application to our life as Christians in America today, would be an idiot. Um, I think L- Lloyd-Jones was right that First and Second Corinthians are probably more perfectly suited, more direct rifle bullets into our life as a as a as a a nation than any other books. And so the choice of where you go to preach and where you go to read, and I do believe that we should read the whole way through Scripture. In fact, a a little aside about our worship services, we had someone come a year ago one Sunday who left saying the church worship isn't liturgical enough. And that's a word that's used to mean what? What? Well, liturgy means the work of the people, but that's not how anybody uses it today. Usually when people say liturgical, what they mean is we want to come into a worship service where things are very precise and uh, formal, and they remind us of the past. That's sort of what people mean by liturgical. Well, there is actually in this service great care taken to make sure we worship the way centuries of Protestants have worshipped. I don't know if you'll notice it, and I'm going to note it. One of the things is we always begin our worship with a prayer of confession. We come before the Lord and we praise Him, and then immediately we go into confessing that we're sinners and that we need Jesus. And so if you listen, you'll hear soon after we begin worship, we will have this prayer of confession. And then we move through the service soon after the confession. We then have an assurance of pardon. In other words, a place in Scripture where we have read to us God's promise that when we come to Jesus' blood for forgiveness, that He absolutely will forgive us. And so we had this morning, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. This is God's promise that those who come to Christ will not be cast out, that he'll receive us. And then we move into singing, rejoicing in this kindness of God through Jesus. Then what do we do? Well, we have announcements, and you'll find announcements all through the New Testament epistles. Uh, Things like uh, Demas. Uh, Well, never mind about that. But also, also talks about coats and, and books and bringing them here and there. And then we go into the reading of what? We go into the reading of Scripture. And if you'll notice, we read consecutively through books of the Bible. It used to be the habit of all Protestant churches that when they would get together on Sunday, they would read through Scripture so that I, I think the figure is three years, but every, periodically you would have heard all of Scripture read out loud, particularly the New Testament. So you'd typically have a reading um, from the Old Testament from the Law, a reading from the Psalter, from Psalms, a reading from the Gospel, and a reading from the Epistles. But what we do is we read a whole chapter from one of the books so that you will hear whole books of the Bible read. And this is what we've been doing for a number of years. Then we have the prayer of the congregation that I do in our behalf. And then we have the preaching of the Word. So, we really do have a very traditional worship service that follows the same pattern that you will find going back to the Reformation. And we believe, not that we should do what the Reformation did, but we believe that the Reformation does what Scripture says we should do. All right? Now, this morning... We're coming to the Word of God to have it preached because, if, again, as you go to Scripture, you will find from Jesus when He went into the synagogue and he, he read from Scripture and then He expounded it to the Apostle Paul who did it so late one night that Eutychus fell out the window to his death in the ground below. You remember that? And, and they went down and they healed him. We see in the Scriptures that the Word of God is preached and it's very important that we choose parts of Scripture in our reading out loud, as the Scripture lesson in our preaching and in Sunday school classes, that we particularly focus on parts of Scripture that have things to say to us that we need. Now, why the book of Galatians? Well, there are a whole bunch of reasons, and I've been thinking about this for years, actually. It's not a decision you come to lightly as a preacher. But um, I think it will be evident as we go through how this particular book has things that we're hungry for and that we need. Um, now, if you know anything about the book of Galatians, you know that the book of Galatians is a book that attacks legalism. But if you know anything about legalism, you know that it's a word that's thrown out against anything you don't like in a church or in another Christian. So really, the most accurate definition of the word legalism, as we use it as Christians today, is anybody who's even slightly to the right of us. Do you get it? You know, in other words, if we believe that we ought to read the Bible occasionally, and and we're talking to somebody who believes that they ought to read the Bible every day, they're a legalist. If we believe that we ought to read the Bible every day and we're standing next to somebody who believes that they ought to read the Bible every day personally and then at night they ought to have family devotions, they're a legalist. You get my point? If we believe that you ought to wear uh, at least a sport coat to church on Sunday morning and we're standing next to a guy that wears a tie, he's a legalist. In other words, anybody that has a, a, a few more standards than we do, they're a legalist. Well part of the reason I'm preaching in the book of Galatians is not so much because I'm so concerned about legalism among us, but rather because I'm so concerned about some of you who think that there ought to never be any standards in your life, and I think as we listen to the book of Galatians accurately, we hear what the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit are saying in the book of Galatians, that by doing that carefully, we will also come to an understanding of what acts of what the Holy Spirit, of what the Apostle Paul is not saying. And both things are very important, aren't they? Now, what do we know about the book of Galatians? Well, first let's read the first two verses. And then uh, talk a little bit about this book. The first five verses are the introduction, but we're only going to read the first two verses. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. Paul an apostle, and then a little parenthetical note here, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul, an apostle, and then a little note about what he's saying when he says an apostle. Namely, that he isn't sent from men or through the agency of man, but that he's sent through Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul, an apostle, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. This is God's Word. Now, in the course of our study of this book, we're going to return to this theme. But let's note a few defining traits of the book in the New Testament. And these will recur as we go through and study. Now, the first word of the book tells us who wrote the book, and that's who. Paul. Paul. Although there's a lot of debate about a lot of the books of the New Testament, who wrote them, how accurate they are among uh, academics who read the Bible and write papers about it, there's no discussion over this one. There, there was a little sort of weird group uh, in the 19th century that argued that it wasn't really Paul, but it's so weird that everybody says, there's no question the book of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul. If there were only one book that's written by the Apostle Paul, in fact, everybody would say it is this book. And so the Apostle Paul has agreed universally that he is the author even by people who tend to approach the Bible skeptically, not believing, having doubts, not really believing things that are said in this book. And in fact, there are four books in the New Testament that pretty much everybody believes that Paul did write what he said he wrote. And those four books are Galatians, as well as 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. Probably Romans is the one most of you would have singled out to be the thing that most people agreed was written by Paul. Now, a simple reading of these two books, Romans and Galatians, quickly reveals that both of them have right at the center the treatment of the exact same subject. And that is justification before God, not by works, but by grace through faith. That's the theme of these two books. Justification before God, not by works, but by grace through faith. In other words, faith is not what saves us, but faith is the instrument that God gives to us and uses to save us, but it is only His grace that saves us. In other words, these two books have at their center the heaven-revealed truth, that men and women are saved from the wrath and judgment of God eternally, not by trying to be good enough to get into heaven. Not by trying to be good enough to get into heaven. But rather, by resting in the completed work of Jesus Christ. After all, how does it work when Jesus says, What we had read to us earlier in the service, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How does that happen if you're saved by works? What rest is that? Now, it is true that living by God's truths, by His character in our lives, does give us rest. Because, for instance, if God is absolutely faithful... And if a man is tempted to be unfaithful to his wife, and if he's casting about with lack of contentment and with every chance he gets thinking of some woman other than his wife, and then he remembers that God's character is to be absolutely faithful to his bride, the church. Because all through Scripture, the church is called the bride of Christ. If we remember that God is faithful there is a sense in which we are at rest. Why? Well, we're at rest because we no longer have to cast about wondering if there isn't something better. You know, it's hard work to be unfaithful. Any of you who have been unfaithful in your marriages at some point, you know how hard work that is. All kinds of lying and twisted emotions and questions and, and then trying to make it up when it's found out. And if you've been a partner to an unfaithful spouse, you know it's desperately hard work trying to decide whether to stay in the marriage and leave, trying to figure out, well, what is faithfulness if the one thing I thought I could depend upon, namely the faithfulness of my spouse, is given away? And how am I going to provide for children when they have a mother or a father who isn't? And you see, it is hard work to live in a way that displeases God. Satan has us fooled. And so there is a sense in which you can say that living according to God's character, according to His law, does bring liberty. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free when we live in obedience. And yet, at the same time, no matter how much we understand the beauty of God's law and the beauty of the character of God as it's revealed in, for instance, the Ten Commandments, we also know that the more we try to live according to the character of God, the more desperately hopeless it is. Because you just can't do it. (laughs) You know, you you get up this morning and you think, okay, today's going to be different. And I hope all of you know yourself and have allowed yourself enough quiet moments to look at yourself that you know that that's about the length of time that you have good intentions. When you get up in the morning, you think, this day will be different. Because immediately, the child crying will irritate you. The husband snoring will irritate you. The wife asking you to go get the child will irritate you. The toothpaste tub will irritate you. How long it takes in our bathroom for hot water to make its way across the house will irritate you. And there's not really a person behind that issue, except the designer. And irritation is the least of our problems. Then it gets into besetting sins. And so the truth is that even when we do desire, because of our love for Jesus, to live in a way that's similar to that models itself after his character, the more we try, the more hopeless it is. And so again, let's come back to the subject of the book of Galatians. The subject is what? The subject is that by trying to live in a way that's similar to the character of God, by trying to model ourselves after him, by trying to obey his commandments, not one person is saved. Now, how does this show up in the book of Galatians? Well, how would it show up today? Well, in conservative churches, it would probably show up in a few issues that we deal with today. For instance, you'd go into some churches, and some churches would tell you that unless you had your children in Christian school or homeschooling, that you weren't a Christian. That if you want yourself and your children to be blessed by God, you have to have them in a Christian school or homeschool. Some other churches would tell you that unless you wear your hair the whole way down your back and wore denim jumpers, that you couldn't be saved. Now, they might not say that explicitly, but you understand what I'm saying. Other churches would tell you that unless you spoke in tongues, it's it's not clear that you're saved. Other churches would tell you that unless you're baptized you're not saved. And those are the most popular churches in southern Indiana. I'd never heard of them except Lutherans and Catholics until I came here. So every church has a little set of things that it tends to say are sort of associated, maybe closely associated with you being saved. All right? The Apostle Paul... Wrote to a church in a particular place at a particular time and in that place at that time it wasn't homeschooling and it wasn't how long your hair was and it wasn't whether or not you're, uh, you, you were baptized. The issue to them was what? It was circumcision. It was this uh, physical act on the body of a man that set off the Jews from everybody else. And kids, if you want to know what it is go home and ask your, your parents um circumcision was said in the in the church in galatia to be necessary for salvation and there was one other thing that kept coming up again and again as and it will keep coming up as we read the book of galatians circumcision and the observance of certain holy days and holy days religious days are what it's the origin of the word we have holiday holy holiday holiday okay And in this church, it was apparent that the people who were the false teachers were saying, if you want to be a Christian and you're a Gentile and you weren't raised in a home that had you circumcised on the eight day like the Jewish home, if you really want to be making the grade, if you want to make the cut, you've got to be circumcised if you're a man. And and, and then also, you have to start observing the Jewish holy days. You have to have these special times and seasons. These are the two issues at the center of the book of Galatians. But we're going to see again and again that as as history goes on, the issues change that a church is dealing with. Legalism doesn't always come through circumcision and holy days. This church is not divided over the issue of holy days. Some of us believe that there should be a day, a week, that we follow the Lord in resting as he rested when he created Some of us believe that every day should be a day of following the Lord and resting as He rested. Um, We don't divide over it. We have different opinions. Uh, I'm not going to say you're less of a Christian if you don't agree with me, and I hope you won't say that about me. Um, So that's not an issue. And nobody here is telling you, if you're not circumcised, that you have to be or you can't really come to the Lord's table or be baptized or get saved. But that doesn't mean that the book of Galatians doesn't apply to our life together because we always have things we insert that are needed in addition to the work of Christ. This is the habit of us as Christians. There are always just certain things that the really spiritual people will speak in tongues. Okay? Now, I'm just using that as an illustration, but it's going to be important as we go through the book of Galatians for us to look inside our hearts and say, okay, what am I adding to the Gospel? What is it that without that I'm just not really comfortable that somebody is saved? But but if they do that, then they'll really prove to me that they know Jesus. Sounds spiritual. It's exactly what the false teachers said in Galatia. What is it in you? What is it in me? What is it in the churches of Bloomington and this church that we think people really need to do that to? All right? That's going to be the constant question facing you as we go through the book of Galatians. Okay, Now, if both Romans and Galatians have this issue at the center, that we are saved through the work of Christ and not by our own works. All right. Then the question is, how do the book of Romans and Galatians differ from each other? Well, immediately, most of you are thinking, well, Romans is long and Galatians is short. <laughs> and you're right. The other is that Romans starts with the letter R and Galatians starts with the letter G. And then the second letter in Romans is O and so on. Um, How else? Well, here you will understand why I chose Galatians. Actually, it's not the reason, but it will make sense to you. The reason I didn't choose Romans is I don't think I'm quite ready. David Wegner took it on at a very young age. Um, I want to wait a little longer. And so David did teach the book of Romans, and Rob Hooper taught the book of Romans here, And so we've been through Romans recently, some of us twice. But, you know, there's another reason. And the other reason is that uh, the difference between Romans and Galatians is that Romans is, if all Scripture is a war over something, which I think is a fairly accurate statement about Scripture, that never is Scripture just sort of calm, dispassionate, kind of boring truth. It's always written into a situation where it's engaging an enemy, all right? So both Romans and Galatians engage an enemy, but you know what? Romans is pretty clean, and Galatians is bloody. Romans is the theater of war concept, you know, where all the generals are way back behind the lines in a room, and they have the surveillance camera footage there, and they've got the maps on the wall, and they've got the little tanks, and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I don't not Dungeons and Dragons, but you know, it's it's like a board game at the student union. You know, it's spread out all over the place and nobody really is going to get hurt. And nobody will even see people that get hurt. Now that's not actually true of Romans, but you get the picture, whereas Galatians is blood caked on the wall incommoding the passers by. It's an abattoir. <laughs> all right? Galatians is absolutely nasty. Why? Because in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is not fighting a principial battle in his brain. The Apostle Paul is fighting for the souls of a particular group of people in a particular town, in a particular church. And so he is intense. Galatians is much more polemical than the book of Romans. It's not to say Romans isn't polemical, it's not a battle, it is a battle. But Galatians is down in the trenches, right at the front lines, shells going over your head, and that will help you to understand the book of Galatians. And I love the book of Galatians because I always tell people, everybody's always willing to say that the church should never fight. No matter what the battle's over, the church should never fight. And I love the book of Galatians because I ask people, tell me, and this is not original with me. Machen is the one that I first read it from. But I always ask people, tell me, uh, if you had been alive at the time that the book of Galatians was written and uh, you had never read the book of Galatians and you opened it up and you started reading it, you know what you'd think if you didn't know it was part of the Bible? You'd think that this man who wrote this book was seriously lacking in a sense of Proportion. This man was on steroids. This man was out of whack. This man lacked a sense of balance. This man uh, is not to be trusted entirely. In fact, this man isn't to be trusted at all. In fact, no man who is godly would speak the way this man speaks. Now, come on, people. Admit it. The only reason you accept the book of Galatians is because it's in the Bible. But if it hadn't been in the Bible and you read it for the first time, you'd think that the Apostle Paul wasn't fit to be the pastor of Church of the Good Shepherd, let alone the Apostle to the Gentiles, let alone have his work recorded forever in the pages of sacred Scripture. So watch yourself on this. Too easily we read parts of Scripture, like the scene on the top of the mountain when you know, Elijah is making fun of the pagan gods. There's all kinds of texts in Scripture when Jesus is, is outing the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's all kinds of places in Scripture where if we didn't know they were in Scripture, we would think that the person who had written them or said them was not godly. And the reason is that instead of worshiping the true God, we have an idol in our minds. Idols are not just physical things. They're, they're ideas. And the idea we have of God is that he's Santa Claus and that he's always sort of chuckling in an avuncular way. You know, know, come sit on Santa Claus's lap. And uh, I hope you realize that that is the common view of God in our world, that God does not ever get angry. It's like uh, one of the newscasters said years ago. um, He talked about he said something like uh, he, was, he was opposing the concept of um, the substitutionary atonement, that God is angry against sin and that he sent his son to be a sacrifice, uh, to, to, to take the wrath of God upon himself in our, in our behalf. And he said basically, you know, my God is, is not like that. My God is not like that. My God is, is bigger than that. My God does not get angry. My God is bigger than that. He doesn't get angry. Um So when we come to the book of Galatians and other places in Scripture where we see the Holy Spirit speaking through a man, and the Holy Spirit getting very intense, and we find ourselves repulsed, we find ourselves withdrawing from it and saying, This can't be spiritual, this can't be right don't ever forget that God takes his truth very seriously that the Holy Spirit is unbelievably intense in defending the prerogatives of the Trinity that the Holy Spirit will often force men to be quite zealous and quite radical in defending the truths of the Trinity have set across the universe, okay? Um, It's hard for us to understand this. It's very, very hard for us to understand this. I want to read the statement of J.B. Lightfoot, the New Testament scholar, in summing up this whole section on the question of the polemical style of Galatians. In comparing Romans and Galatians... Lightfoot says, The epistle to the Galatians stands in relation to the Roman letter as the rough model to the finished statue. The epistle to the Galatians stands in relation to the Roman letter as the rough model to the finished statue. Both of these works, Galatians and Romans, stand at the very pinnacle of Paul's work. They have two different identities and purposes. One is a particular battle, one is a general battle. Galatians is more polemical, Romans less polemical. Not that it's lacking in, in, in battle, but it's, it's less focused on war than Galatians is. And the two themes of the book of Galatians are, as I have said, justification by faith apart from the works of the law and second, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That this third member of the Trinity is freely given by God to all who believe in Jesus Christ And that it is not our power, but it is His power, the Holy Spirit's, which works in us according to the redemptive will of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we'll get into these themes, but you're going to get a good clue of the polemical nature of this book, of the battle nature of this book, the minute you start to read it. Because what does it say right at the very beginning? We read it together. It starts here. It says Paul. And then it says what? An apostle. So much of Scripture we are so familiar with that it has lost any meaning to us. You've had the experience of having a poem that your mother may have read to you when you were a little kid and you heard it over and over again. You know, little kids like to hear the same thing over over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then one day, maybe you're 55 years old, maybe you're 10, you all of a sudden stop and say, Now, wait a second, what was that saying? You know, maybe you never thought about, you know, the, the, the witch, you know, who was going to eat uh, the little children in the woods, right? And it was just kind of this cute thing that you like to hear the story and everything. And then all of a sudden, one day when you were 17 years old, you stopped and thought, why on earth was my mother reading to me a story about a witch who was going to eat children? You know, what was that about? You know, you loved the story. You listened to it again and again and again. And then one day you stopped and said, why was my mother scaring me? All right. And then you determined that you were only going to read Pat the Bunny to your children. Poor children. <laughs> Actually, I like Pat the Bunny, but if that's all you give your kids, you're, you're twisted. you got to give them good and evil because they're going to run into it sooner or later. But anyhow, that's another question. Well, here we're so used to hearing Paul say an apostle. We're so used to this word that we just... Jump right over it, and we don't stop and think what is being said. And I want us to spend a few minutes saying, What is Paul communicating when he begins his book with this little section Paul and apostle, and then that parenthetical statement? We'll get to that later. Paul and apostle. Well, the question of the battle over the apostle Paul's apostolic office is central to the book of Galatians. And in fact, it's central to a lot of what he writes in the New Testament. Um, You'll find arguments over this again and again. And it's very interesting to see the Apostle Paul arguing for his authority. Now, have any of you ever had somebody who was in authority over you argue for their authority? You ever had that? Have you ever had... I remember I had a music teacher... At Wheaton Christian Grammar School. She will remain nameless. But this poor woman didn't know how to teach. And unfortunately, she had a bunch of children in that class who were more than willing to take advantage of her inability to teach. And all she could do was constantly focus on her authority and it was because she had none. I mean, she did, she'd been delegated by the board, the responsibility of leading, this so she had the authority. But you know how people can have an office but lack the office at the same time? They can have a position but never never hold it? Well, that was this woman. And typically, when we had driven her to distraction in music class, she would then, when she'd tried everything else, she would do one of two things she would either stand behind the piano, it was an upright piano, and she'd say, well, I'm going to pray now. But she wasn't leading us in prayer. She'd put her arms on top of the piano and put her head down on her arms, and she'd just stay like that. And that's not a good way of handling junior high school kids. (laughs) You know? When she stands like that, um, she has made us respect her less. And then the other thing she would do is she would take us into a a broom closet and spank us. Um, But of course she was a weak and timid woman and so it didn't hurt. And so it was purely a symbolic gesture. And again, the last thing in the world you want to do with junior high students is just have a symbolic spanking. (laughs) Generally, if you're in a marriage and you have a fight with your husband, say that you're a wife, and your husband stops and says, I'm the husband, I'm the head of the home, you want to spit in his face. And the reason is, if he has to stoop to remind you of that, how pathetic, you know? If you have a professor that stops in the middle of a discussion and says, can I remind you that I'm the one that has the PhD? I mean, It's pathetic. It's embarrassing to argue in favor of your own office and authority. Right? Will you agree to this? And yet the Apostle Paul does it again and again. Now, Why does the Apostle Paul start by saying Paul an apostle? It's humiliating. Why would he lower himself to do that? Well, you can make the case that for him to use these two words right at the beginning is actually not an argument for his apostolic authority, but it's just an identifying mark, all right? As I would say, you know, sign a letter that was an official letter from the elders to an organization. I would say, Tim Bailey, uh, moderator board of elders. And I'm not arguing for my authority. I'm simply identifying it to the people that I'm writing, right? you can make that case for these two words at the beginning, but you can't make that case for the book of Galatians because he argues for his apostolic authority. And he does it in Corinthians. He does it in a number of places. He argues that he is an apostle. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because the word apostle is not just a generic term for a sort of set of responsibilities that somebody has. The word apostle is a very, very precise word in the New Testament that carries a precise meaning, and that meaning is absolutely tied to a precise authority that God has delegated to that person. Okay? It's not just a throwaway term. It is very precise. And when he says Paul, an apostle, he is making reference back to what? He's making reference back to, in Luke 6.13, when they came, it says, Jesus called His disciples to Him and He chose twelve of them whom He also named as what? Apostles. So there's twelve, and Jesus is the one that first calls them apostles. Now if Jesus singles a label out like that, and says, here are the twelve men that are going to be closest to me, and I'm going to call them apostles, then you begin to understand why it's very significant in the rest of the New Testament when some man says, I am an apostle. And when other men say, You know, the Apostle Paul isn't really an apostle. He doesn't really have that authority. You know, his message is twisted. And even his claim to authority is twisted. You know, he wasn't there when we were all surrounding Jesus. You know, he didn't go through all of the tough things that we went through. He wasn't left between the crucifixion and the resurrection wondering what was going to happen to his master you know, And he wasn't there when Jesus came to us in the upper room. And you can see how when they're making arguments about doctrine, about whether you're saved by faith and circumcision or grace through faith alone, they would bring in... And furthermore, the one that's saying that circumcision isn't necessary isn't really an apostle. He wasn't really chosen by Jesus. It was the twelve of us. And if you're not one of the twelve and you're making the case, you say, you know, the Apostle Paul wasn't really there when Jesus chose the twelve. But he has his authority because those twelve delegated to him. You know, he's a subordinate of the twelve. He's not equal with them. He's underneath them. And so you need to listen to us because we've heard the twelve too. And we have a better understanding of what the twelve hold to is about circumcision than the Apostle Paul does. You understand? And so this issue was like this. Is he an apostle? Isn't he an apostle? Does he actually have equality with the other apostles? Who were the apostles? The apostles were the twelve that were selected by Jesus after a night of prayer and they were labeled apostles. So this is a key issue. And when we see the apostles listed in Scripture, what we see is again and again, there is one name that always begins the list and one name that always ends the list. What's the name that begins the list? (laughs) Big mouth. Peter. Simon Peter. He's always there at the front. He's always there at the front when anything is to be said. He's always there at the front when they list the names. Now, who's at the end? Judas, the one who betrayed his Lord. Isn't that interesting? So even among the apostles, there is the clear leader. And then, after the apostles, at the very tail end, is this one who from eternity past was set apart to betray his Lord. Isn't that interesting? After Jesus ascended into heaven, he said that he would send his power, his Holy Spirit, upon the disciples, the apostles. All right? And now the twelve had become how many? Eleven. And why were they now eleven? Because Judas had committed suicide. And we find that at the very beginning of the founding of the church, that Peter, it says in the book of Acts, the first chapter, it says Peter verse 15 stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus when it said, quote, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary... That of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so they went through the casting of lots and they chose Matthias. And Matthias became the 12th apostle. And the New Testament church was built upon the apostles that Jesus chose. Eleven of them, that night that he spent all night praying and he named them apostles. And then the twelfth replaces Judas and it's done by Lot. And again, the Lot is chosen according to the Holy Spirit. So God chose these apostles. Well then, we look in the Bible and we see again and again and again and again the theme of this office of apostle. In Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead. They were chosen by Christ himself. Paul makes it very clear. No man chose me, God chose me. And the New Testament church, when it chose by lot, was making certain that it could be said that God chose Matthias and not the church. And this is central to being an apostle. These apostles not only were chosen by God Himself, but they had the power of working miracles. And we see again and again this theme. In Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus called His twelve disciples to Him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then in Acts 2, 43, it says, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done, what? By the apostles. They were chosen by God. They had the power of working miracles and they were inspired. The basic criteria by which New Testament books were accepted into the canon, in other words, were called a part of Scripture, were labeled to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, was that they were authored by one of the apostles. All right, Apostolic authorship was central because... The apostles were inspired by God. Their world as apostles was that of founding the churches and upholding them by supernatural power specially bestowed for that purpose. Now there is a debate and we were having it out on the front porch of the church last Sunday morning. Some of you may have heard the discussion or the argument. But there is a debate as to whether or not the apostolic office ceased with the founding of the church or whether it continues. Um, I believe that it ceased, although uh, that does not mean that I think it's inappropriate to ever use the word apostle anymore for the church. And as my defense, I'll cite Calvin, who referred to Martin Luther as an apostle. But here's, here's the argument. The argument is if the word is commonly used in life in New Testament times, and if it has a meaning that's outside of Scripture, but it has another meaning that's in Scripture where Jesus very, very specifically uses it to refer to a group of 12 men that He chose and that He gives specific authority to, is every use of the word apostle that use of the word apostle. You understand? Like, for instance, if I were to say... During our congregational meeting, the elders will address a number of issues. You would understand that I'm referring to certain men in this church that hold the office of spiritual leader. But if I were to go into the, uh, one of the nursing homes and I were to say um, our elders ought to receive good care and be visited conscientiously, you would know I wasn't referring to the officers of this church, but rather to the people that are older than I am in the nursing home. Well, this is the same with this word apostle. It had currency. It was commonly used in the New Testament times. And so every use of it is not referring to the office. And that's why a lot of times you'll have arguments where, for instance, if you ever watch uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network, you'll see certain men who uh purport to be uh given gifts of healing and being able to raise people from the dead and things like that, that they'll refer to themselves as an apostle. And sometimes it's not clear whether they're saying that they're one of the twelve or thirteen or fourteen or twenty five hundred, or whether they simply are saying that they have the same authority and power as those apostles, even though they recognize that when it comes to heaven the twelve apostles will be seated on their thrones, if you understand? In other words, are they using the word in a technical biblical sense, or are they just using it to describe somebody that God has sent into the world to do his work? All right? And so when you go back into New Testament times, what you find is that this word apostle has both general meanings in the, at the time and specific meanings. And it's not always clear that the word is being used in a specific way to refer to the 12 apostles as our Lord set them apart and as the New Testament church chose them. Um, Sometimes it's used in a general way. The word apostle is the Greek word apostolon or apostolos, And in the New Testament, that Greek word is translated apostle 78 times, but it's also translated messenger and he that is sent. And this is what I want to leave you with. Every time you hear the word apostle, I want you to think as someone who has a commission to do a job by an authority and is sent out to do it. That's what I want you to think. Because that's the origin of the word. An apostle could have been the admiral of a fleet of ships that were sent to... Go take care of the pirates in the Caribbean. You understand? It could be an emissary or a diplomat that's sent to a country to take a very sensitive message and to implement a peace truce with that country. But an apostle in New Testament times is somebody who is sent by a higher authority. They have a specific task to do and they have the authority of that person above them resident in them so that as they do that task they are able to carry it out without having to go back and talk to that authority before. They've been delegated a job and the question is, will they do the job? Now, how does that matter as we go into Galatians? It matters because either Paul, when he speaks about how we're saved, has the authority of God has been set apart by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to release us as Gentiles from the duties of the Mosaic Law, the duties of Judaism. And therefore, we can trust the book of Galatians, that it's in the canon, but that it's right. And we don't have to go and become Jews. We don't have to wear the little prayer hats and, and, and you know, learn Hebrew and get circumcised and observe their holy days and every other law of the Old Testament. Because once you start being a Jew, there's no way to end. All right, Or the Apostle Paul is sent by God to release us from that. It's an either-or thing. And so this word apostle has a lot hanging on it. Next week we'll pick up. But this is a beautiful book. This is a book that is meant to give you liberty. And if you desire freedom, freedom from sin, but freedom from a bad conscience, freedom from constant assaults of Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, telling you that you can't be saved because of what you've done and of what you're doing. And this is the book for you. And the public proclaiming of the truths of this book is God's instrument to give you freedom. So let's, in anticipation, ask the Lord to do this for us. Father, we pray.